I was reading an article by Ajahn Jayasaro, one of the senior Western monks in the Ajahn Chah tradition. He mostly lives in Thailand, British person, and uh, he gave that example that we hear, you know, used in different ways. If you're interested in getting to Washington, D.C., then uh, it really helps to have a sense of where it's at, and having some sense of where Washington, D.C. is and where it isn't is used all the way along the way. Like, am I getting closer to this place, or am I getting further away from this place? It's really obvious. And so, at the beginning of a retreat like this, what is the place we're trying to get to? And a lot of times Buddhists like to boo-hoo having a goal or an objective. But it isn't about not having a goal or, or an objective. It's more about how to hold it wisely, like how to have a goal in a wise way. Not too tight, not too loose. And so we don't need to be ashamed or embarrassed about wanting to be happy. Even though, honestly, we don't really, all the time at least, know what we mean by being happy, like what that even is. But I want to be happy, peaceful, free. And this is a, it's a useful reminder, maybe even, especially at this time of year, where um, it's just easy for us to feel oppressed by the weather, by the darkness, and you know, for some of us, a lot of social obligations this time of year. And now, on top of it all, we have the retreat schedule to oppress us. And it, it can feel like a life, can feel like a burden. The retreat can feel like a burden. So let's begin our retreat with reestablishing, rediscovering our shameless wish to be happy, to be at ease, for the heart to be really light and buoyant and enlivened. To be free of fear, free of greed, free of confusion. The Buddha taught, as most of you know, suffering and the end of suffering. Not just suffering, but suffering and the end of suffering. Suffering is relevant to us because it has an end. If suffering, if we had this notion, this idea that suffering doesn't have an end, well, it probably would make sense to pursue a life of distraction. Just to, you know, get a little distance from the stress of life. Any way to cover it up or hide from it would be better than nothing. But that's not what... uh, I'm inclined to. That's not what my life, my practice has demonstrated, and certainly not what the Buddha teaches. He talks about suffering 
and a radical end to suffering, a heart that is completely, fully unburdened, no matter the conditions of one's life. In this article, Ajahn Jayasaro talks about this tendency to be dead serious about things like our practice. So notice that in a sit or maybe it becomes pervasive through a day where there's some sense of being dead serious about something and then unfortunately deadened by the seriousness. And basically we've constructed in our minds some idea of a huge mountain that is really impenetrable or hard to get to the top of. But when we get there, then we'll have the carrot, you know, peace or happiness or ease. Instead of a more dynamic, present aspiration that some sense of peace, ease, lightness, love, it's here. It's like really close, actually available. No matter the particular decorations or surroundings, sensations, feelings, mind states that might be present, we sustain this interest, this conviction that peace is available. Thikdanan has a great line, peace is available, please help yourselves. And it just, you know, changes, because normally we think we have to get somewhere or do something before it's really available. This is, uh, I sent uh, an email out a couple hours ago, right before we started, and uh, I sent an article by Ajahn Tanisaro, another um, American um, monk in the Thai forest tradition, and Sister Siri Panya. Uh, I don't know if she's a Bhikkhuni now or not, but anyway, a sister, a Buddhist nun, a Western nun in the um, Thai forest tradition. And this is from her article, Renunciation, the Highest Happiness. And she starts by sharing this cartoon she saw a long time ago. Hagar, do you remember that? Viking? Yeah. And But this, this idea is something that's been around a lot, you know, where somebody's seeking out the wise sage. In this case, it's this kind of dumb, I don't know, dumb, but this... How do you describe Hagar? <laughs> Simple? Simple. Viking. And uh, he's seeking the truth. So he's climbing the mountain to find the sage and asks the sage, you know, how do you tell me the secret of happiness? And the sage says, simplicity, self-restraint, renunciation. And then Hagar says, is there anybody else up here? (laughs) So you've probably heard some variation of that same story. Because this is often the case that we don't like the teachings we're given. we're, We're interested in spiritual teachings, but then it says, you know, they say, well, sit down and be with your sensations. And we go, you know, something else, like maybe Sufi dancing or something more interesting because we don't really want to follow the instructions sometimes that we're given. And this is what 
this Buddhist nun says, this Western nun says. This is what should be done Oop, a little later. When we find out what the spiritual path involves, it sounds to our worldly mind like deprivation. There is a part of us that feels renunciation means to lose everything we love, having, depri having to deprive ourselves of what is pleasant and enjoyable in life. This is understandable, for this is really the only way that the worldly mind can conceive of letting go, of seeking fulfillment and pleasant experience. So part of renunciation like not talking, for example, or not going home and watching TV or reading emails, it is to show up this tendency in our mind to think that we'll be happy in some meaningful way if I just read my emails or just, you know, have a conversation with somebody, as if that's going to be a cause for some kind of meaningful happiness, sustained meaningful happiness. Like she says, this is really the only way that the worldly mind can conceive of letting go of seeking fulfillment in pleasant experience. We have to, in a dramatic way, say, okay, I'm not going to seek pleasant experience through conversation, through media, for this period of time. In order to seek it somewhere else. So she goes on, she says, Yet I am sure that within all of you there is also something else, something beyond that mind that is always wanting and craving and trying to hold on to our identity and experiences that recognizes and resonates to this word, renunciation. Whenever I've talked about this theme with other people, often they say that although the world word horrifies them in a way, there is also a fascination an echo of something we intuitively long for. This is the aspect of renunciation that I hope to tap into as we explore this very deep theme. And you have a copy of this article in your email. She goes on, As the contemporary Indian thinker Panikar says, quote, Not everyone has the inclination to take up the vocation of monasticism, but all of us have some part of us which is a monk or a nun, and that should be cultivated. Unquote. So as we consider these teachings and reflections that speak to that part of us, all of us, which is a monk or a nun, it is not necessarily something that involves having a shaved head or wearing a robe. It is an attitude, a way of approaching life, which essentially boils down to giving up seeking our fulfillment from the experiences of our life. And I'll read that again, which essentially boils down to giving up seeking our fulfillment from the experiences of our life, of needing them to have a particular quality, and giving our energy instead to understanding experience itself. Now that sounds a lot like our sitting and walking meditation practice, where we're giving up seeking our fulfillment from any particular experience, needing to have a particular quality in our walking or in our sitting practice, and instead giving our energy to understanding the experience itself. So when we turn our attention to the understanding the experience of walking or understanding the experience of sitting 
under the understanding, any experience, it is because we're seeking a deeper kind of happiness, a happiness that's free from trying to have a pleasant experience as the cause for happiness. Now, pleasant experience will come our way during the retreat, and unpleasant experiences will come our way during the retreat. And we're going to use those pleasant and unpleasant experiences to understand the experience itself, not to indulge in the pleasantness or try to get away from the unpleasantness. That's why we sit still. That's why we stick to the walking practice, even though there's 10 minutes left in the session. That's why we don't leave during the lunch meal when we could, because nobody's watching or nobody's going to care. But we stay because it's really interesting to look at whatever pressure has been building up, wanting to escape. As some of you have read, I'm sure Pema Chodron has a famous line, never underestimate the desire to bolt. (laughs) And for us, it's like, don't underestimate how strong and convincing the desire will be, for example, tomorrow morning not to come back. And do whatever you can to come back. Like, remember, there are people who didn't get to come to the retreat because you got in. You know, like the Buddha wasn't afraid to use fear or shame if it was in the service of developing insight. That would help us, help one go beyond fear and shame. I want to read just a little bit more from this article. She says, When we understand this, we can start to glimpse that renunciation is not a matter of doing something or having to create something or getting rid of something or exterminating something in life. Rather, it it is moving towards non-contention. Now, that's a sentence like if you wanted to use something as a particular theme, moving towards non-contention. And you could talk or sense that as real happiness, like, the happiness, the peace of the heart that's not in a contentious relationship with anything right now. Rather, it is moving towards non-contention, a sense of rest and relaxation, not having constantly to try and manipulate and control and evade and maneuver anymore. We are able to open in a fearless way and relax into the experience of the moment whatever its quality may be. In opening to receive life, we still engage in the conventional level of reality, the social level of moral values, identities, mother and father, livelihood and mortgages. If we grasp these things and expect complete fulfillment from them, we will always be disappointed. But if we see our life as an opportunity to understand Dhamma, the way things are, that is renunciation. This letting go is very freeing. Whatever comes to us is Dhamma, the way it is. And there is joy in being in contact with truth. Whatever its particular flavor. Renunciation can sound like passivity or a doormat philosophy, but actually it's, it is the opposite. True response-ability, she says, response-ability. The ability to respond wisely and compassionately to life naturally arises in the non-attached mind. There can be both activity and letting go. And then she quotes the Buddha. 
I have seen the misery of pleasures. She's really talking about the, or Buddha is talking about the attachment, the dependency on pleasures. I have seen the misery of pleasures. I have seen the security involved in renouncing them. So now I will go, I will go, uh, I will go on into the struggle. This is to my mind's delight. This is where my mind finds bliss. It's a struggle because it's the habit of the mind to seek pleasant experiences and to seek to get rid of unpleasant experience. So the struggle is not to fall into the deep habit where we're sitting for 35 minutes or 45 minutes and our entire strategy is to get a pleasant body experience. That's a pretty limited way to use the 45 minutes of a set to try to have a comfortable... Because it's, first of all, it's like the arc is... There's some opportunity in the first seven minutes, you know. But then it just gets less and less likely that the body's going to be a pleasant place. So if we're really thinking that, okay, I'm going to get it, it's not going to happen. It's not going to be a lasting place. The happiness, the pleasantness, comes from letting go. Letting go of being dependent on pleasant sensations in the body. So we have some time. I thought it might be nice. We won't obviously be able to hear from everybody, but we can take 10 minutes. And it'd be nice for people to share, a few people who can bring to mind times in your life, whether it was on retreat or during a sit or just in daily life, where you've touched or opened to the experience of a happiness that wasn't about pleasant experience, but was a happiness of letting go or happiness of renunciation. It was the happiness of the heart not dependent on things being any particular way. And the way she talks about this, like the heart has to do something, so if it's not going to be dependent on the conditions of the moment, then it's going to be understanding the conditions of the moment. So that moment of lightness or freedom that you experience might be because the mind in that moment was deeply understanding, but not attached or not clinging to the way it was. But anyway, it would be nice just to ground this in actual experiences that people remember. So if you have some thoughts, you can just sit together in silence until somebody has something, and then just speak nice and loud so everybody can hear you in the room. That would be nice. Anybody can begin. I'm Anita. Um... <clears throat> on Christmas Eve, I, I had to go to Barley's to try to get my lutefisk, and uh, <laughs> it's really a mess on Christmas Eve, you know, it's kind of an intense day, but, and, and I was really upset about a number of things, and, and just kind of like at some stressful breaking point sitting in my car, so then Santa looked at me and tried to get me to smile, and I started crying. So then um, I walked in the store and got away from Santa. So <laughs> I could just get myself together. But I was like, I, I recognized that because of this practice, I had this solid core that was still the, the whatever sad, messy stuff I had going on, it didn't um, take over. And I still had really pleasant exchanges with other customers and the 
the butcher who was out of Ludafisk, and <laughs> the cashier, and so forth. And so that, that was just kind of new for me to have that, to, to know that I had a, a solid core that was still able to connect with other people, and even though and I had this sadness or whatever it was, um, it was okay. Yeah. Thanks, Anita. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did think of it since. Say your name, Spruce. Spruce. And I, I can think of instances on retreat, these instances are, I think it's kept going for all these years, where usually it isn't this pressure builds up. Like I really get to this place of, of just huge boredom, and I don't like boredom. And then I see all the layers beneath the boredom, and, and I, I remember like it's a body memory on the last um, common ground retreat that was on in August, where I had that experience and it was like, I didn't try to do it, but through the practice, just this burden lifted. I just like let go entirely for just a very short period of time. And I so got that nothing needed to change about anything, that everything was just, it was just this pure contentment and um, and lightness and uh, and then of course I was trying to make it extend for a bit longer and it kind of dissipated but but I still really um, it brought greater faith in the practice and that what was actually true yeah thanks Bruce. two years, I've given up really significant things, a relationship, a, a particular uh, class structure, and just a playwriting career and an acting career. And it just, I feel like a professional renuncia. And the one thing I've learned, I think, about these pieces of me that are, that were pretty big pieces of me, is that, um, it's a powerful thing to face to face giving things up that you love. It it feels um, like stepping into a, a world that wasn't really um, wasn't really what you were trying to do. Like the doing piece of it is ends up being shifted. So then there's that potential to well, if I'm not doing what I thought it was born to do, then what am I doing? And so that puts a person in the crux of uh, noticing instead of doing. And then it's a discovery process of, well, what am I here for? Uh, a feeling of um, reinventing, but not really doing it, but sort of just re-noticing. So I have found that this work is uh, goes to the crux of uh, shedding skin and um, I, I really admire the work and it's hard mm -hmm. yeah that's all I can say. <laughs>
Yeah, and sometimes you really need to let go of those things that we were attached to because it, actually it's the attachment that's the problem, not the thing itself. Theater isn't the problem, but the de- mind, mind's dependency or attachment. So sometimes it has to go away in order to really learn that it wasn't the source of happiness or wasn't going to be the cause for happiness. Sometimes it doesn't have to go away, but the attachment has to fall away. Thanks, Anne. That was useful. Time for one or two more. Anything else come to mind? I'm Sharon. Um, I have uh, I've had a situation in which I was unable to do things that I had done for many years, and so I didn't choose to enunciate them. I was kind of forced to. And then I got into um, wanting, I mean, I had already been doing this, but I think kind of clinging to this and not in a very skillful way as, you know, this sitting and the Dhamma and all that, but, you know, sort of almost like, ah, oh, it's a savior, it's a savior. And, um, and I, you know, I've just been aware of that just recently. So I, I'm really hoping that I get more in, in touch with, uh, with uh, you know, other more skillful ways. Yeah. And that's something we can notice on the retreat is our attachment to the practice. It's very common and it's probably unavoidable. I don't necessarily, I wouldn't consider it bad. I would consider it a strategy, a necessary strategy that eventually has to be abandoned. So whatever attachment we have to the practice, it may be really useful, like really being attached to our meditation practice allows us to let go of other attachments. But this has to be put, the attachment, not the practice, has to be put down too at some point. That's that image the Buddha used about the raft, you know, to get across the flood. And then you don't pick up the raft, you put it down at that point. But you need the raft, and when you, when you need, at those times when we need the raft, we need it, so we're holding on, we're using it. Any last comment from someone? Yeah, Paul. I've been aware recently of confusion, and when I was able to identify it, it was a lot less disturbing to me. Oh, I'm confused. Oh, that's okay, that happens to people all the time. And it will all be worked out, and it always does. It's just confusion. It's been very helpful to me. Yeah. So these articles that I sent and some of the other handouts that are out there, I also sent you the links for in case you want to print your own copies. Um, feel free to use just in a skillful way. You don't don't feel like you have to read the articles. You might only read a paragraph or just use it when you feel like you need some Dharma input. Then find a paragraph to read or read part of the article. Whatever works. Are we allowed to read it? It's in our email, right? <laughs> Sounds like a dilemma. <laughs> That's the thing about the middle way, you know, it's like rules and guidelines are not to be clung to, but they're not to be ignored either. 
And it's just about, you know, it really is about non-attachment and about not seeking happiness, like the sister or this nun said. Are we seeking happiness in a pleasant experience? Are we opening up the email because it's like avoiding the boredom that Spruce was talking about? Or are we following this sort of compassionate action? looks like I could use some Dharma input. Mark mentioned that he sent an email. Maybe I'll take a look, see if it helps, you know, that kind of thing. So we're going to end in about 10 minutes. Uh, let's do the refuges and precepts. I'm thinking that uh, we can do these. Uh, I'll maybe call in response for the precepts. And I think everybody, with a little help, will know, know the uh, refuges. So in the morning, we're going to do the refuges in a slow way. So let's do the refuges now in that slow way. That way you'll get a sense. And that basically we're taking refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. Buddha means wakefulness. So it's not just referring to the historic person that set these teachings in motion for us. But he represents, and the word Buddha represents wakefulness. And that's something that we can realize here in the heart. It's right here. I mean, if wakefulness is of any value, it has to be here. It doesn't really matter that somebody else is wakeful. It only matters if this heart can be wakeful. And Dhamma is what that wakefulness wakes up to. It wakes up to the way it is, in an honest, direct, immediate way. The sensations of the body, the reality of the mind, is awoken to. The Buddha wakes up to Dhamma the way it is. And in that awakening, in that integration of a wakefulness, waking up to the way it is, beautiful, there's a beautiful response in the moment. Because the response, what we say or don't say, what we do or don't do, it comes out of the integrity of Buddha knowing Dhamma. Wakefulness, being connected, being intimate with the way it is. So we take refuge in that process of Buddha knowing Dhamma, expressing Sangha. It's just what we call being a skillful human being, an awake and skillful human being. So we chant that slowly together, Buddhang Saranang Gachami, and then we do, then the second one is Dhammang Saranang Gachami, Sangang Saranang Gachami, and then we say Dutyampi, that means for the second time, and then Tatyampi, for the third time. So we do those three refuges three times, and then we'll do the precepts called in response after that. And then we'll sit for just two or three minutes when we're done.
now so I did have a sheet out so most of you probably have it you can put it out in front of you we'll do the Pali then the English and we're going to change the English uh, instead of I undertake the precept we'll say I, I undertake the training and otherwise we can keep it the same and we'll do the five precepts first in Pali then in English first Panatipata where Amnani Sikapadam Samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from destroying living creatures. Adinadana Where Amnani Sikapadam Samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. Abramacharya, where Amlani Sika Padam Samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from sexual activity. Musawada, where Amlani Sika Padam Samadhyami. 
I undertake the training to refrain from incorrect speech. Sura Maria Majapamadatana where Amani Sikapadam Samariami. I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs which lead to carelessness. And then we can just look at 6, 7, and 8, just understanding like how you might work with these really optional. But one is not to, the 6 in a monastic setting would mean you wouldn't eat after the midday meal so that you're living like monks and nuns live where they take their main food before noon and don't really eat much past noon. But for us, it could be more about not using food as entertainment. So we use food to take care of the body, keep the body healthy, feeling good, but not use it because we're bored or distracted or we're looking for a pleasant experience to make us happy. So this is especially important like at night, where you know there you are, you're not going to watch TV or you might want to eat. So maybe for this these four days... We use food as medicine, not as entertainment. That's six. And then seven is basically looking at our the mind's dependency on adornments, like looking good, and entertainments. And just putting them aside. That doesn't mean you have to, you know, you can comb your hair. <laughs> but we don't need to, like, put jewelry on. I mean, it's not like it's wrong to wear jewelry. But you don't need to wear jewelry or you can just look at your motivation for how you're decorating the body, what you're doing with the body. And just live in a simple way for these four days, in a way that makes sense in your life, without getting tight about it. And then eight is looking at how you might use sleep as an entertainment, like just trying to get out of a yucky feeling, I'll go to sleep, I'll go unconscious. And again, use sleep as medicine. Well, how much... Rest does the body need? Maybe resting during the midday break after lunch makes sense, but maybe it's just an escape. You're not actually, the body doesn't need sleep. So you can just resolve the six, seven, and eight in a way that makes sense for you either now or tonight. And then we take these precepts for this time until noon on the 31st as our trainings, something that we keep picking up no matter how many times we lose it. We just pick up these trainings again. And it's a way that we protect this container of the retreat, but also take care of ourselves. Great. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.